0: All right, we are continuing our walk through Revelation, and we're wrapping up chapters 8 through 11. We are looking at the seventh seal, so if you would turn your Bibles to page 1033 in my Bible. Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. This is the seventh seal. Now, Janet is a young mother, and she has two children, and they're all under the age of five. They just moved into the neighborhood from out of state. Her husband, Doug, is very anxious to start his job and very anxious to get into a productive routine, as you can imagine. Janet is thinking about her future friends. She's thinking about future meaningful relationships for herself and for her children. Now, both Janet and Doug, though, are praying for a good church to attend as they move into this new town. They're praying for a good church in which they can worship the Lord. They're praying for a good church in which they can be fed the Word of God. They're praying for a good church in which they could grow in grace themselves, but always in the context of a one another in community, recognizing that they're not an island of grace and an island of private piety, but they are a one another of a body that the Lord has united them to. They also pray for a good church that so they can serve in the church and, and be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands and be used for God's glory wherever he has them, wherever the the going of the Great Commission is for them. So Janet was thrilled when Alice, her next-door neighbor, invited her over for some tea to meet some of the other ladies in the neighborhood and some of the other children that are about the same age. And she's particularly thrilled because her next-door neighbor has children about the same age as herself. Now, when they uh, arrived there about one hour into this get-together, it was very clear that, that Alice and her friends were very influential in the community, not just on an economic and social, but on community affairs and even educational. And it was also very uh, clear to her, about an hour into this meeting, uh, that they also despised Christians, despised the church, and despised God. There was tremendous belittling slanders, And there were lots of biting sarcasms in their speech as they would exchange knowing looks and comments about God and the church and Christians. Now, you're Janet. How do you live a life of witness to the glory of God no matter what? What does it look like for you if you're Janice? Now, Paul, on the other hand, he grew up on the other side of the tracks. He grew up with no silver spoon in his mouth. In fact, if he had a spoon at all in his mouth, he would have been grateful and thankful. His dad abandoned him and his mom when he was eight years old, so it left their welfare existence just pushed him over into greater and greater poverty. He grew up fighting on the streets and running alleys instead of running on football fields. Theft, thuggery, drugs and sexual immorality, that was his playground his whole life. That was his recreation. that was his sport. It was only a matter of time that after being in the wrong place at the right time that he'd be dead on the streets and no one would be able to claim the body. No family, no friends. But that's when Jesus shined the light of his glory into his heart. And that's when he saw Jesus to be his pardon and his perfection. And he actually trusted in him to be so. Becoming a Christian was life altering for Paul. It was a A cosmic shift in his whole life, a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new way of desiring things, a whole new way of putting his hands to work in the world. Yet, he still had this pull to the old ways of thinking and to the old ways of desiring and to the old ways of living. You're Paul. How do you live a life of witness the glory of God no matter what how do we do this well what these particular chapters are about is that big idea how does a Christian in this world's realm between the first coming and the second coming how do you live a life of witness to the glories of Christ no matter what please stand for the reading of God's word we're going to read chapter 10, 1 through 11. We've already taken a, a bit of pieces of the scripture reading last week on 8 9. Just keep in mind, those of you that are joining us, we're entering into the seventh seal. I'll explain a little bit more to catch us up. But the seventh seal is being opened in 8, and through 8 and chapter 9, you've got seven trumpets that follow, and then all of a sudden you have this intermission or this interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, which should bring back to remembrance of the seven seals. And remember, there was between the sixth seal and the seventh seal an intermission, a time to focus on the church, the church on earth and the church in heaven. Same thing happening here. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot out on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out in a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. That must have been an interesting conversation. I just noticed that. Would you please? Did he use please? And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages languages and kings. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. But Lord, we do thank You for all parts of Your Word. And we do thank You that You call us forward even now to hope in You, both now and forever. And so we do hope in You. We hope to hear a word from You. And we hope for You to break in with blessing in our life. Lord, we acknowledge that we all need You to come from the outside in. For You, by Your Spirit, to do the work of illumination and enlightenment, And by you, by your spirit, Lord, to warm our hearts to see you and to trust you and to hope in you. And so even now, by the power of your word, would you do that? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. How do you live a life of witness to the glory of Christ no matter what? How do you do that as a 10 year old child? How do you do that as a teenager? How do you do it as a single mom or as an 80 year old retiree? How do you do it as a blue-collar worker? How do you do it as a billionaire? How do you do it if you're a soldier right now hunting down terrorists in foreign lands? How do you do that? How do you do that when you're in happy times? And how do you do that when you're in times of plenty and in times of poverty? How do you do it when you're in darkness and when you're in great delight? How do you live a life of witness for the glory of God? No matter what. Well, that again is the big idea, and last week we focused on the no matter what. So there's one big idea, and that is how to live a life of witness to the glory of God no matter what. But there's a lot of no matter what in here, and that's what we focused on last week, and there were two major areas of no matter what. You might remember that the first was that no matter what is you're going to face crushing calamity. Everyone in this room will face crushing calamity. It's guaranteed. In fact, it's even promised by the Lord himself. It's not one of our favorite promises. This is not the promise you'll find on my refrigerator and we won't find it on your refrigerator either. But it is one. You will face it. And that's what's taking place in here. In chapter eight, the seventh seal is opened. Now, we've been building up to this for a long time. I mean, right from chapter 5, when we saw that there was only one who could actually take the scroll from the hand of God, the scroll, remember, it had writing on the inside and on the outside, and there were sealed by seven seals. Now, the writing on the inside and the writing on the outside is the stuff of the kingdom of God. It's the good news kind of stuff. It's the stuff that's brilliant and beautiful of the grace of God for a people. And it entails all kinds of things like what this king looks like when he came and what he did when he came. And it also contains things about, well, the king's now in heaven and his people are still on earth. What does it look like for them in the kingdom of God? It contains that kind of stuff. But then even it forces us forward and says, well, what does the kingdom of God look like in the future when there is ultra happiness and when, when heaven and earth do meet? completely and finally and fully, and God dwells with His people. This is the kind of stuff in the book. But there's these seven seals, and we've snapped off six of them, and now we get to the seventh one. Now, when we get to the seventh one, it's a tremendous silence takes place in heaven. It says for 30 minutes. Now, quite frankly, I don't know if that's literal or metaphorical at this point, but we do know everyone was silent. All the singing that we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5 stops. All these tremendous creatures. Remember the four great bodyguard, praetorium guard, that guard the throne. Will not allow unholiness to come in and, and stand before God. And they are always giving, day and night it says, praise and honor and glory. They stop. We've got the saints that are in heaven, the slaughtered saints that have this lament saying, God, when are you going to bring in the kingdom? They stop. Everyone stops. 30 minutes Silence, And we saw that that is the calm before the storm. That it's one of those sick silences. Why? Because what's about to happen is the high king, the holiness of the high king is about to come face to face and crash into all unholiness. And so you have this picture of this transcendent holy God about ready to step off his throne and slam himself personally into unholiness. And when he moved, everyone went quiet. Because it was the movement of God and the appearance of God. And so everyone stops their mouths. And that's why we have these seven trumpets now. We have six first, and then we have to wait for the seventh. Chapter 10 and 11 are another waiting, just like we had to wait for the seventh seal that we finally got to. After the first six were broken, there was an intermission. And so we have six trumpets going forward and we recognize that these six trumpets, that they're providential judgments, that they're these foretastes breaking in in this world's realm of final justice yet to be. So there are foretastes coming in, but they're also forecasts because they're pointing to what eventually is coming at the seventh trumpet. Now, all kinds of pictures should come into our mind, particularly in the Old Testament, because we know that Israel's history was a lot to do with trumpets, particularly when Israel was walking into the promised land and came upon the first defense of the Canaanites, which was Jericho. And the Israelites were told to walk around it how many times? Seven times below their trumpets and the city would fall on the seventh time. That's the picture that should be created for you in this passage. The trumpets are divine warnings. The trumpets are severe mercies. The trumpets are calls to repent for all humanity. And, it's, and you have all the time in the world until the seventh trumpet comes at the seventh trumpet the seven time march has come to an end and the city of man falls finally fully completely and the new heavens and the new earth come to be so at these six trumpets what we have in the first three or the first four they hit all the major areas of creation and trumpet one dry land trumpet two the sea trumpet three fresh water trumpet four the sky this is where we get affected this is why there's crushing calamity All areas of creation, all the major areas are affected by these trumpets. You and I will be affected by this. This is where suffering enters into. This is where persecution might take place. This is where we are woken up to our own unholiness. And so the call for everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, for all of us is to repent. So we don't look detachedly at a tsunami that comes in and say, boy, I hope those folks repent. And we don't look detachedly at when 3000 die in a tower that comes down as if we're detached too. the call for all of humanity is to repent. By the time it reaches our doorstep, no matter what your theology is, by the time an event reaches your doorstep, it comes from the hand of God. Now, however many secondary causes it led to, to where it finally gets to your doorstep, but the only way it gets to your doorstep is because of God. And that's the point here, because the lamb is flipping open the seals. The lamb is breaking every seal. Okay, So the first three talk about hitting the major areas of creation, and we're in that. But the next three, the trumpets 5 through 7, they only hit the earth dwellers. I want you to look at 8.13. That's the point here. In 8.13 it says, Then I looked, I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe. These woes are separating themselves from the first trumpets. And notice these woes are to those who dwell on the earth. And the blasts of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. So what happens in these last three trumpets... They are directed at unrepentant unbelievers. It's directed specifically what's called earth dwellers, verse Revelation, heaven dwellers. Those that that do not trust in the grace of God and those that refuse and reject to trust in the salvation of a slaughtered lamb. Okay, that's what's happening here. And then, of course, those that we're going to see in later chapters, when we get to 12 and 13, the language gets a little more pictorial. The language gets a little more colorful. And these folks that are earth dwellers, these folks that are unrepentant, these folks that stumble over the cross, these folks that refuse to trust in the grace of God, that the grace of God is not a good thing for them, they're also called that they align themselves with the beast. And then we get that 666 seal put on them as opposed to the The seal or the name of God put on God's people. See how the pictures are starting to come together a little bit. Now, you might face cruel persecution, and that's the second thing, the second no matter what might happen. All of us might face persecution. It's hard for us to imagine that in the American church. We're going to be more associated with not the beast, which is a demonized or a demon-energized state power. The beast is symbolic of this demon-energized state power that tries to stamp out the church. And that's where the martyrs come from, and that's where persecution comes from. So the beast is that kind of pictorial reality of the state, and it's its punishing persecution on the church. And it's demon-energized. That's why it's called the beast. But there's another one called the harlot. And the harlot is is symbolizing the world's seductive powers, where the world then beckons and appeals to the the appetites and the cravings of the sinful nature. And it's it's an appeal and it's a seductiveness of the world. And that's usually what gets the American church. But we might face cruel persecution. It might happen. In fact, when we get to chapter 11, that's where we got the two witnesses. And the two witnesses are represent, representing the church. And when we get down to 7 and 8, we see that the church dies. It's actually martyred, that there are saints that are killed. And that could happen in our century. We have more martyrs in this century than any other time in the history of the church. I know, again, we're in America. It's hard to see. But 150,000 martyrs, it said, every year take place in the church. All right. Today, though, we're going to focus on how you live. That was the no matter what. Let's look at how do you live. Let's turn to chapter 10 and let's look at the first answer. It comes from what God made John do with the scroll. Look at verse 10, chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 8. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and dry land. So I went to the angel and I took him. Told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter. What God had John do. Now, remember what the scroll, the little scroll is just symbolizing the big scroll. It's the kingdom of God. And what John is made to do is actually eat the words of the kingdom of God and digest them. So what God is having John do, which becomes the first application for how you live a life of witness, is that you've got to get God's word in you. You've got to eat it. You've got to eat the words of the kingdom of God for yourself. These words. Need to be internalized. You've got to own them. You've got to take in the realities. The words need to be sweet to you. You need to taste the words of God in such a way that they are sweet like honey. And some of the words are bitter and turn your stomach sour. But notice the close close proximity of John to the word of God. It's no longer outside him. It's now been chewed up in such a way that it's been internalized that he actually tastes the sweetness of the kingdom of God and he tastes the bitterness of the kingdom of God. But the point is, he's tasting them. He has a spiritual appetite and a spiritual taste of these realities. And again, this picture goes back to other Old Testament pictures, and it might recall Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel was given the same thing in chapters 2 and 3. He was given a scroll that he had to eat. Now, there's an evangelist named Robert Sumner, and he has this book called The Wonders of the Word of God. He tells of this Kansas City man who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured by the explosion. He lost his eyesight. He lost both his hands. But he was a new Christian. As a new Christian, one of his great disappointments and discouragements was is he had a real desire to know God's Word and read God's Word. And now he couldn't. But he heard about a lady in England who read by Braille with her lips. And so what he did is hoping to do the same. He sent for some books in Braille of the Bible, and he began very expectantly and hopefully. He put his tongue on the first characters, and he realized he couldn't even feel a thing, that the nerve endings on his tongue were destroyed, so he couldn't read. So he was greatly discouraged. A couple days into his discouragement, he gave it one more try, and he put one of the Braille characters up to his tongue, and he had a sense of feeling in it. And like a flash of joy ran through his heart, through his mind, as he began to realize, I can read the Bible now. This evangelist said by the time he had been done writing the book, this particular man read the Bible four times with his tongue on the Braille. Now, how in the world? I mean, can you imagine the tediousness? And why in the world would he do it? What would make him do it? The answer, according to this passage, is the word of God is like honey on your lips. It tastes real good. And it is incredibly nourishing. And so there's two pictures, I think, that come out of this passage. The first thing that we must do is internalize the word of God. If you're going to live a life of witness... To the glories of Christ, no matter what, the word can't stay on the outside of you. It has to get internalized. It has to get inside of you. It's almost like you must breathe in the word of God like it's the very breath of God himself. That's one picture. The other picture we get here is that the word of God is like spiritual food. And you actually digest it in such a way to be your spiritual nourishment. It is honey on the lips. So now all of us should be asking, well, how in the world do you do that? How does the word go from outside to being inside? How do you internalize the word of God? And that's where we ended basically last time. And that's this. Trying to figure out a way for you to remember. I'm not trying to be too cute, but I am trying to have a little cuteness in there. We all watched the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia. We love the books. If you think of Aslan, if you think of Aslan, you'll think of how do I internalize? Here's an acrostic. A for Asland, admit. Admit your lack of internalization. Do you understand the tremendous freedom of being able to go to the Lord right now and admit that you lack, that you're internalizing the Word of God? The tremendous freedom there is in honest and open communication with the Lord. That right now, no matter where you are, you can admit, Lord, I do not have your word, I lack your word being internalized in me. And experience the freedom of honest and open communication with the Lord, but also you begin to feel and experience the freedom that comes from experiencing his forgiveness for it. And there's a process when you admit what happens, your soul begins to move from this noisiness to a quietness. Until we actually admit where we are before the Lord and we're honest before the Lord, you can probably attest to, as I can, our souls get very noisy. There's a lot of static. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of interpretations. There's a lot of noise from our cravings and our desires. There's a lot of noise from our relationships and our families. There's a lot of bombardment of different static coming from all areas. But all of a sudden, when you admit your honesty before the Lord, what happens is your soul moves from noisiness to be still my soul. Because it begins to quiet itself as it rests on God Himself. And that's a tremendous movement when you just begin to admit. Admit you lack internalizing God's Word. Okay? S. Seek the Holy Spirit's help while reading God's Word. Many years ago in a Moscow theater, there was a matinee idol named Alexander Rostovsnin. He was playing the role of Jesus in a sacrilegious play. And it was entitled, Christ in a Tuxedo. So this is probably at least 20 years. During the play, he was supposed to read two verses from the Sermon on the Mount, and then he was supposed to remove his gown and cry out in a loud voice, give me a tuxedo and a top hat, as he was impersonating Jesus. But as he read the words, here's the words you're supposed to read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. As he began to read those two verses, he started trembling on the stage. And this is a rock-hard atheist. And he's done this production before. And he starts trembling at the words he's saying. And then what he ends up doing is he ends up keep reading the Sermon on the Mount. Now, all the other cast members started catcalling him, stomping their feet, coughing, trying to get him to get back on track at what he was supposed to do. And he kept going. And finally, the curtain's coming down on him. Before the curtain comes down on him, he has a flash of Scripture from when he was a child that he had heard when he had happened into a Russian Orthodox church at some time. And this is what he yelled out with a voice filling the whole theater He yelled out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And before the curtain hit the ground, he was trusting in the pardon and perfection of the Lord Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, you'll seek the Holy Spirit's help while reading the Word of God if you believe what God actually says, and that is this, that the Holy Spirit finds you in the Word. That the Holy Spirit finds me, and the Holy Spirit finds you in the Word. And if we believe that God's Spirit is present in the Word, and that's why the Word's called living and active, and that's why we have that wonderful metaphor that it's an uncaged lion. That the Word of God is not caged, it's a lion that's out of the cage, and the lion devours, and it doesn't need to be protected. We need to be protected from the Word of God. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than double edged sword, that there's power in the word of God. And if we believe that we seek the Holy Spirit's help while reading it and we do things like this, we say, oh, God, may you give me eyes to see you in the scripture. And the Puritans called it light. May you give you light. May he open your eyes so that you see God. The second thing we end up praying and seeking help for is while we're reading the scripture, we say, oh, God, would you give me a a heart? Would your word be my heart? Would your word give me heat? Would your word warm my coldness to you? Oh, God, would you actually give me the faith to trust you and hope in you and love you and worship you and adore you in the scripture? I think a lot of us. Do not, myself included, experience a spiritual sight and a spiritual appetite because we still think it's up to us to get it. We think we bring the eyes and we bring the heart when we come to the Bible. And then this is a big problem for us. Because if you're like me, I don't have a lot of eyes and a lot of heart that wants to even open the Bible on some days. So if I'm waiting for me to bring it, I won't go to it. But if your approach is what God says about his word, that he actually finds you in the word. That he actually is present and opening your eyes to see him in the word and ends up chipping off the frost in your heart in the word. Now you go to the word and wherever condition you're in, you say, oh, God, work on me. Give me eyes. Give me heart. OK, and that leads to the second one, and that's this. Locate, so we got Aslan, admit, S, seek the Holy Spirit's help, third one, locate. What you're going to locate is Jesus in the center of God's Word. I cannot tell you how important this is, especially today. There was a time in church history where if we were to sit around and talk maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if I was to say locate Jesus in the center of God's Word, everyone would be able to raise their hand and tell you how to do that. I'm talking an eight-year-old child would be able to tell you that. Now, now most of us, we've grown up in traditions and we've grown up in situations where the church is in its particular part in history where instead of locating Jesus in the center of the word, we're locating eternal ideas and universal principles in the word. We're locating how to fix your marriage in the center of the word. We're locating how to lead like Nehemiah in the center of the word, and how to kill your giants like David in the center of the word. We're we're listing off how to's and easy listening laws, right? So how do you do that? Well, first thing I want to say is this, reading the Bible to see what God demands of you does two good things for you. If you're reading the Bible, there's two ways you can approach it. The first one is you can read it to see what it demands of you. In other words, read it for the the laws. Lead it, read it for the instructions. Read it for the training and righteousness. And it does two great things. First, it will humble you. <laughs> and it will humble me. It will crush us. It will convict you. Because what happens when you read the Bible to see what it demands of you, as Calvin said, it's a mirror that shows you how unclean you are. And so you see your uncleanliness. And then you have an experience like Paul, and you end up saying something like Paul said when he said... Nothing good lives within me. Nothing good lives within me. And when we come to that point, that is a good thing. There's tremendous freedom in life when you are able to say that because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to show you who you really are. And that is a good thing. Second thing the Bible does when you read it that way to see what it demands of you is it teaches you it instructs you it, it trains you it shows you what righteous living looks like it shows you if you were righteous and obedient this is what it does look like it looks like submitting yourself under others and considering them better than yourself. It looks like pursuing your joy and the joy of another real love. It looks like submitting to civil authorities. And it looks like the hierarchy in families and children honor and obeying their parents. And it looks like the code of ethics we see throughout the scriptures. It looks like that. However, you can't do that apart from a connection to the most central part of the scripture. If you miss Jesus in the center of the scripture, all you're running after righteous rules will do is make you self-righteous. Or crush you even further. Those that have a tender heart. All right. So here's the key. Reading the Bible. How do you read Bible with Jesus in the center? How do you locate Jesus in the center of the word? When you read the Bible to see What God freely gives you in Jesus. When you read it to see what God freely gives you in Jesus, that's the power of the gospel. If you come to the Bible, you even come to a command or you come to an imperative. If you read it to see what he demands of you, it's going to do its great work in your life. It's going to humble you and crush you. And it's going to show you, yep, if you're connected to grace, this will start taking place in your life. That's a good thing. So it drives you to Jesus. Now, once you go to Jesus and you say, what, how do you read it to see what God freely gives you in Christ? Now you read it that he actually gives you these commands freely in Christ. For instance, now you can come to the scriptures and you look at the reality. This is where your forgiveness is found. That your forgiveness is found in what God freely gives you in Jesus. That your righteousness is found in what God freely gives you in Jesus. Jesus. That your changed life is found in what God freely gives you in Jesus. That your new eyes and your new thinking and your new feeling, your new desiring, your new living, your new acting, your new obedience, this is what God freely gives for you in Christ Jesus. Your power to change, this is what God freely gives you in Christ Jesus. I don't have love, this is what God freely gives you. In Christ Jesus, I am just sour. I have no joy. This is what God freely gives you in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I can think right. I can't even hold my thoughts. I can't even interpret reality. Everything is going nuts. Confusion and chaos. I can't quiet my soul. I read the Bible and all I do is think of what I can't do and cannot do. This is what God freely gives you in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness. Righteousness. I don't know where I am. I fail and I'm fearful. God freely gives his presence to you. Freely in Christ Jesus. Do you see this? This will turn your Bible reading upside down. And the power of the gospel shines. Because Jesus becomes everything. And now you boast in him. Okay, we got to keep moving. Act. That's the second A. Trust God's presence and power to go with you. Now you've located Jesus and now that you know his cross and his crown, his complete obedience has done it all. Because he's done it all. The whole salvation is accomplished. Now you can act. Go forward with trusting that his presence and his power is with you. And you can practice that. You can practice that in the midst of your confusion right now. I'm going to act and I'm going to go forward believing because of Jesus that his presence and his power is with me right now. In the midst of your temptations, in the midst of your conflicting desires that are seeking to rule you and you want to say the unkind words and you want to lash and defend yourself and you want to jump out and make sure you control your life and get your I once Practice His presence and His power is with you because of Jesus in those moments. All right, the last one, and number your days. If we just stop to think about it for a moment, we'd all realize our days are really short. It's teenagers that don't believe that. It's teenagers that are the only people on the face of the earth that actually believe their days are not short. They can't wait to get their days going. They can't wait till they're that age yet. They can't wait till they're the age beyond yet. And then you get into your twenties and you start approaching thirty and you're like, Gosh, I wish I was going that way, not this way, right? We all know that we our days are moving on very, very quick. And in fact, the psalmist says when you do number your days, there's a sanctifying reality that washes over your mind and your heart. And that sanctifying reality is that you start gaining a heart of wisdom. And what that means is, is that when you begin to number your days, you're actually pushing your heart and mind forward into paradise. And when you get to paradise, your thinking about things and your heart's desire about things look differently now when you stand in the present. And that's gaining a heart of wisdom. So you internalize God's word by all these things, these Aslan things, if I can remember them. Admit, admit you lack. Seek the Holy Spirit's help when you read the Bible. What was the next one? S, L, locate Jesus in the center of God's word. Then act, act because of Jesus. You've located him. now act in his presence and his power and go forward into the world. And then the last one, number your days. All right. Second thing I want you to internalize this passage reveals is a rugged realism about the world. There's an African proverb that says, smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. Vance Havner said, one day of green pastures and still waters is followed by dark valleys and miry swamps. And a thousand whys lie unanswered, tabled for future reference. G.K. Chesterton said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. And then he asked this profound question. But in heaven's namesake, what are you going to turn to? USA Today weekend recently featured a cover story on the subject of resilience. And the article asked this question. Why do some people bounce while others break? And it gave this definition, this writer did, of resilience. The ability to get through, get over, and thrive after trauma, trials, and tribulations. So I just want to say one thing. You will not make it in this world, and you will not be resilient, if your faith only smiles. Do you know what I mean by that? If you don't have a rugged realism... About what this world is like. But your faith is only a smiling faith. You will never make it. You will never have categories for passages like 1110. Let's look at 1110. You won't know what to do with something like this. When after the martyrs are slaughtered. And they refuse to even be buried. Is the picture here at the end of verse 9 and 10 says, And those who dwell in the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets or the church had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth and now they're dead. The world always hates the grace of God. I know that sounds shocking to us. But you will develop a rugged realism if you begin to realize that you will not, in this world, have things set right, ultimately. And that the realism of the world is the world stumbles over the cross and the world despises the cross and the world rejects the grace of God. And we all know, yeah, but what about... What about that person? I know that someone. I was that someone that that no longer does so. And you're exactly right. And what happened? You were taken out of the world into another kingdom. Because this world's nature will always stay the same. So much so you've got to be transferred out of it to another kingdom. Darkness to light. So those of us that only have a smiling faith, what ends up happening, whether by your word, if you teach it or by your witness and your stoic manner, you do a lot of harm to the church. You do a lot of harm to your brothers and sisters. And you do a lot of harm to your children. If they don't see you break and you get hurt and you. Trust the Lord in desperation. Where else are they going to see it? So you've got to internalize. Remember, we're trying to be a witness to the glories of Christ no matter what. So we've got to internalize a rugged realism about this world. A rugged faith. And it consists of two things. It's found in John 16, 33. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He says two great things. You're going to have tribulation. You can't escape it in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises it. When you believe that and you really get that, you will have a rugged realism and you'll have a rugged faith. But you also get the other part. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You can't escape this. In Jesus, you have triumph. You have tribulation in the world? Yes, rugged. In Jesus, you have triumph. You have courage and strength to go on. A rugged faith and a rugged realism. Let's see if I can do the last one so that we're moving out of this passage. Internalizing a rich faith in the resurrection. So we've got three internalize. Internalize the word of God. Internalize a rugged realism. Internalize a rich faith. If you look at 11, 11 through 13, what ends up happening here is it says, but after the martyr's death and after the rejoicing of the world, but... After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered in them. They stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven say, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. There are unbelievable pictures here. Don't miss the picture of time here. Three and a half days. This is not years. It's not even a... A semester. It's not even a month. It's not even a full week. It's half of a full week. Three and a half days is all it lasts. Paul would say this slight and momentary affliction. Don't miss the picture here, too. A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. You know where that should take you? it should take you probably about probably about 1500 years well now probably about 1800 years no probably a little more than that it'll take you a long time back into time when actually there was this great valley and there were bones all over the valley remember this and ezekiel walks in and god says to his, ezekiel sees this valley of dead bones and dry bones and he laments israel and who can restore Israel? And God says, Ezekiel, open your mouth and preach. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel starts preaching the best sermon heard on this world's realm. And an army of bones start clattering. And the leg bone connects to the, and the hand bone connects to the, and the organs are put back together again, and all of a sudden, this army of Israel, full-organed, full-body, full-skinned, standing before God as the Word of God was being preached. That's the picture. Except the difference is this: for Ezekiel, he had to preach a long sermon. For God, he says, Come up here. Three words: And you rise from the dead. Come up here. Three words. And the last picture is notice what happens to you. Notice the imitation in verse 12. They heard a loud clap, voice from heaven, come up here. They went up to heaven. And everyone else, the enemies, feared them. They went up to heaven in a cloud. Who should that remind you of? How did Jesus leave? He went up to heaven in a cloud. So, do you want to be like Jesus? (laughs) I mean, do you really want to imitate Jesus? And I mean not the what would Jesus do stuff. And I don't mean the moral ethical stuff. Because the moral ethical stuff and the what would Jesus stuff do cannot cause this to happen. But if you really want to be like Jesus, imitate Jesus, you rise from the dead because he first rose. And so if we're going to imitate him, the greatest news in all the earth is that his resurrection was just the first, not the last. It was the beginning, not the end. And so now you imitate him by rising from the dead in the blink of an eye, and all he has to say is, come up here, and it's all over. And then we're on to the new heavens and the new earth. Amen.